Hello, gorgeous people. How are you? Welcome back. Series four. Here we go. And what a way to begin. Now, all I can say is get ready. This conversation is my longest so far. You may have to listen in two parts or take a really long walk, but my goodness, I think it will be worth it. Mark DeVoe has had so many next chapters. He's an entrepreneur, coach, recording artist, and a lover of life. He's also a best-selling author. His work along with Mark's stay at the bestseller experiment has helped change people's lives. I know because I'm one of them. He's played at Glastonbury three times. Yes, three times. He built an internet company, started the charity Foodshare, as well as leaving the UK to begin a new life with his wife Jen and their three children in Canada. Now, when you hear Mark is a lover of life and then you hear what happened to his family after they moved to Canada, you'll understand just how special he and his family are. I'll let Mark tell you what happened, but today, despite what did, he's an eternal optimist. Not only that, he's helping people like you and me live lives we really want rather than doing what we think we should. He knows how precious life is and now he wants to help you have the right mindset to live yours the way you'd like. Hello and welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to indie author, I speak with incredible people who've already started their next chapters in the hope it might help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here he is. Mark DeVoe. Mark DeVoe, welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. I cannot tell you how excited I am for so many reasons. One being, you're my first international guest. I'm talking to you and you are in Vancouver Island. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Ellie. It's such a pleasure. And yes, yes, um, don't let my voice confuse you. I'm not in England. <laughs> no, you're not. And I am staring out your window. Forgive me if it looks like I'm not concentrating because I'm just staring out your window, your lovely trees, thinking, wow, that's Canada. That's Canada. Well, you know, that tree right there that you're probably looking at right now, Ellie, um, is also the favourite tree of our local bear. Oh, wow. And I kid you not, I kid you not, I was sitting in my studio um it was about a year ago and I was actually uh, coaching someone at the time and this huge bear ran past my window, scared the life out of me and and then sat literally, I'm not kidding you, like what, six foot away from where I was. Wow. I was fortunately inside the building having some apples from that tree. So <laughs> I actually have to kind of, when I leave my studio in the garden, I have to kind of keep my eyes about me because we have bears in our garden <laughs> this is very different from Surrey England where yes. the worst thing we used to get was like a you know if you if you were really unlucky maybe a fox in your garden that, yeah. that went through your bin maybe a dick but yeah so there you go we're not even five minutes in and we've already got a bear story so this really is oh. a first so anyway let's get get straight into it as you said let's begin with your prologue you grew up in Surrey you had a sister and I'm guessing were you quite a sporty child Yes, yeah, actually sports was probably one of the biggest themes that ran through my childhood and still very much an important part of my life. But yeah, I I I was I loved footy. I just love love footy. I got into Liverpool when I was 5 years old. Um my uncle took me actually to a game in London to try and convert me to his team, which was Queen's Park Rangers and I watched this football game and Liverpool were playing and I just fell in love with them and and then I started playing and then I learned about running. 
and um a teacher of mine um we used to do this thing i don't know if you ever did this Elliot, at school but it was called five was it five stars or something and you would it'd be like a decathlon and you you try loads of different events out and wow. um uh, you get points for them and then if you if you hit certain levels you would get certain um a certain standard and my teacher one of my teachers who was one of the most amazing people in my life mr holdsworth ben as i as i know, know him as um he took me under his wing and he just said look let's try every single event let's see if we can get you up to this level anyway he um he he showed me how to do triple jump which is something i've never done in my life before and i almost went out the end of the pit and he looked at the chart and he said oh my gosh he said this is ridiculous and it went it just transpired that um i broke a few records and and then he took me to a local athletics club and I, from there i kind of went on to like national athletics in triple jump as a teenager and ended up with an olympic coach wow. which i didn't realize at the time but it really did set the tone for my life moving forward and, and the mindset that i kind of developed being a part of a team that actually had an olympic silver medalist in the team like it was a group of teens and adults and my coach would go off with him to the olympic games so it was such an eye-opening experience mm. well we come on to that we'll come on to that but just before we get to that just going back then so what kind of student were you were you quite academic at all or was it really um you know were you interested in your books then uh but or was it really very much you you just wanted to be out there being sporty i like to think that i was academic <laughs> <laughs> yes what would your I, I teacher was, say I, yeah no I, I think i was pretty conscientious because what actually came to a head is i got to a point where i had to decide between athletics as a career i got to one of those signposts in my life where do i go and go for the olympics which is what i had always been a huge dream of mine or do i go to university it was literally i had to make that that decision um when i reached that point in my life but so i think i think i was both and i think having that balance of know being fascinated by learning which has become now a lifelong pursuit for me um but also having that outlet of sports which i now realize looking back is such an incredibly powerful thing for mental health along with fitness and life lessons there's so many analogies that you can take through sport you know winning and losing and um, upsets and surprises and so, yeah, I think it, it was very much a, a great balance. And if I could do it all again, I would definitely try to keep that that balance. And I'm always trying to work with my kids to be, you know, focus on, um, you know, being good at school, but also, you know, making sure that they get that exercise and, and, and take part in, in team and individual sports. Yeah. And what were your family like with you? Did they encourage you a lot with your sports as well? Did they encourage you with the academic side? Were they sort of just a, a balance of all of it? um my my parents are absolutely legendary uh they really I, I always remember my childhood being one where i was so supported by them they encouraged me all the time um i always felt they they always had my back you know they would show up to a lot of football games and and you know track events and i realize now as a parent of three a single parent of three children that that was quite an undertaking for them to balance all that in their lives so um, my mum was a gymnast. Um, she was actually, um, she's from Germany and she was actually born in a bomb shelter during the war. So mm -hmm. she has an incredible start to her life. But she went on to become a kind of regional gymnast champion. So, so I think I got the sporty stuff 
a lot from my mum. And my dad was the PhD physicist. <laughs> wow, what a combination. Yeah, well, I, don't, I kind of quite know what you get when you stick that in a test tube. Well, <laughs> I was a test tube baby. You. But, but that's, I think that's why I got that kind of balance of academia and, 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 and sport. So, yeah, they, they've always been so supportive. But the thing, the thing I always remember about my childhood is just that they always gave me this. I was a crazy dreamer. Even as a young kid, I I dreamt of, you know, huge big things, and they always encouraged that. They never said, "Oh, you, you know, get, get pull yourself back down to earth, Mark." They really kind of like marvelled in that with me, and kind of allowed me to play with this kind of imagination, and and really that's what led to so many crazy things happening in my life. Yeah, it's amazing. It goes to show how important it is. Because didn't you say when you were four years of age to your mum, you know, like, what is life all about? You were sort of questioning it all then at that young age. Yeah, I know a lot of parents have probably experienced that. And you sometimes look at these little little tots and you think, oh, my gosh, you know, there's like it's almost like they've been here before. But I, I, I do remember very, very distinctly, and this was a common thing at bedtime, it, it wasn't so much mum can you read me another chapter of the story it was why are we here mum what's what's the universe and I would kind of fall into what I call infinite thinking and I would lie in bed at night as a very young child imagining me in the bed and then I would expand it out to the house and then the town and then you know England and then the world and then I would, I would see the world disappear off into the distance a bit like in some ways the kind of experience that a lot of people, I say a lot, uh, some very exclusive people are having right now by popping up to space for five minutes. Yeah. I was kind of experiencing that as a four-year-old and I would get into this, what I call infinite thinking, where I would just keep going and going and it, it would just keep expanding. It sounds like I was on drugs, doesn't it? No, I've it never doesn't. actually, <laughs> I've never actually taken any, I've never even put a cigarette in my mouth. Uh -huh. I've never taken a drug, but I can only imagine that it was kind of like that expansive experience that some people describe when they they do psychedelic drugs. Yeah. But as a four year old, I was it was very clear for me, um, and also quite scary. I think because it was so big, and I don't. I, I often reflect on what was going on there because I know that that's been a theme throughout my life. I I look at life in a very, I think, a different way. It's like I, I feel like I've got a different pair of glasses to so many people. And I observe often what's going on on a very big scale. And it, it gives me insights, which I don't really know where they come from half the time. But it all started back when I was when I was very, very young. And, um, yeah, my parents were vouched for that because it was one of the hardest questions to answer at bedtime. It wasn't about, like, I don't want to go to school tomorrow. It was like, why are we here, Mum? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. how do you even start with that? Um, what a I question. still don't know the answer to that, right? No, me neither. Me neither. But I do know what you mean because I do that, when, especially when you're driving along in the car. And my mum always did this as well. And you'd say, right, that beyond us is is this and there's the moon and there's space. But then what goes further than that? So so I'm, I completely understand what, you, what you're talking about. But just imagine if your mum had shut down that conversation and said, oh, Mark, stop being so silly, you know, go to sleep. You perhaps mm. would have been very different. So it goes to show, doesn't it, how we speak to our children we shouldn't poo-poo anything what they're thinking. Completely, yeah, it's so important that we do we we don't understand even a, a microcosm of what's going on in this world and our own lives. And so, when a when a child comes into the world, we have to always be open to what they could teach us. And I find as a parent, my kids teach me so much. Yeah. 
um, I think there's there's a lot that we learn from our kids. So yeah, to, if you ever have a child, anyone ever listening to this, if they ever have a child that asks those big questions, just go with it and yeah. see what you can learn from them. <laughs> what might happen? We're going to find out because we're going to move on now. So so moving on to your first chapter. So like you say, you were so inspired by your Olympic coach. Now forgive me if I had this in the wrong order. So obviously you did decide to leave the sport behind. You turned down a PhD, if I have that right. And then you went on to build your own web company, first of all, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I um, I, I didn't decide to leave sport. My knees decided that I could no longer do sport. And um, well, actually, yeah, I, I, I couldn't do triple jump and, and long jump and sprinting. Um, so in the end, I guess the universe kind of guided me in that way and said, right, Mark, you know, you've had your fun, you know, and now it's time to kind of buckle down. So, um, yeah, I, I, I did a, I did a degree uh, and I was one of those students who didn't really quite know what they wanted to do. But so I, I kept it very broad and I went into kind of business and management. And um, again, I, I did reasonably well at university. I was kind of balancing it with um you know, I went to Canada for a year as part of that trip, uh, as part of that degree. Um, so I had an incredible time at uni, but I never saw myself as a kind of, you know, an academic as such. You know, I didn't see myself going on. So I'd never even thought about the idea of staying on after four years at uni. And somehow, somehow I managed to ace the final year exams. Everything was on back in the day before they started bringing up coursework and credit systems everything was on those last two or three weeks and actually just as a side story there was a girl in my year whose mum died of cancer two weeks before her exams and I realized at that point just how unfair that system was because yeah. she was obviously just in absolute you know distraught she couldn't even you know think about revising um and I always remember that I always remember how unfair that was and, and on, on the other side you know I I just happened to have some really um you know, the questions came up in my exam. Anyway, and I I, I I, walked out of having seen the result and I I managed to get a first, which I wasn't even predicted. Wow. And weirdly enough, I remember, I remember this so distinctly, in the entrance hall of the building at the university were three of my professors and they pulled me aside and they took me into a room and they said, Mark, um, congratulations. And I was just still stunned because I had been looking down, I'd looked at a 2-1 hoping I got a 2-1, and I looked down the list. This was before you got, you know, emailed your results. We were all standing, clambering around this long piece of paper that went all the way from top to bottom. And I kept looking at two ones and I went down thinking, oh, crap, I haven't got two, two, two. Th I couldn't see my name. And someone nudged me and said, Mark, if you look, and there were like a few of us got the first. And mm. and so I, I was in shock. And then the next minute, I'm in, a, in this room with the three professors and they're offering me a, a fully funded PhD, fully funded trips to Australia, Wow. as part of my and a, and a position in the department and I had already decided that I was going to leave I was like off into the big wide world the world was my oyster and so at that moment I was utterly I didn't know what to do no. um but actually it was the first one of the first moments in my life where I once I thought about it I really stuck to my my I, I listened to my heart rather than my head my head was screaming do the PhD get the doctorate you know you want that doctor Dr. DeVoe, because my dad was a doctor and I always thought, oh, that's so cool, Dr. DeVoe. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to do this. I I know my heart won't be in this. I've got so many other things I want to do and I was ready to leave. So I actually turned down the all of that opportunity. Um, 
because also what happened at that time is there's a lot of death that runs through my story by the way Ellie just to warn you mm -hmm. around that time about two my mum and dad were at my graduation ceremony and they got a phone call five minutes after it finished from the neighbour who said your house is on fire oh my goodness we were in Wales and my parents lived in Surrey so they obviously couldn't rush back anyway it turns out that um, some work that they were having done in the kitchen um it was a very hot day and there was a spark that lit the adhesive for the tiling that had been put down by the workers and it lit it the whole place went caught on fire so that was on my graduation day that the house that i i'd lived in um Goodness you know me. got caught on fire and then two weeks later my grandmother passed away mm -hmm. and this was a really seismic moment because it was the first time that I had ever been in the room with a corpse. Now, as morbid as that sounds, it happened to me at a time in my life where I was, I had this kind of all these different signposts and opportunities, and it was so fundamental. I just said, I'm, I'm not ready to go out into the world and, you know, spend the next 50 years of my life working in a corporation, which is basically, you know, what had been kind of line in some ways was lining up for me. I said, and I thought, I am, I'm going to go traveling and two weeks later two weeks later uh, after negotiating a, a delay of six months to a job i'd already been offered i was in a taxi in delhi wow with a with a a guy who was a retired officer from the gulf war who i'd met on the plane flying over driven by a half blind taxi driver who was driving down the middle of the road and I kept saying to him, you're in the middle of the road. And he said, I know I am. I'm doing that because I can't see and I need to follow the line. And yeah, of course <laughs> we were he passing, is. Right. And there was an elephant, a guy on an elephant, like literally like in, on, the, on the hard shoulder. I, my mind was completely blown. And the, experience I, the experiences I had on that trip completely changed my life forever. They changed the way I looked at the world. They changed the way I looked at mortality and the reason that we're here. And it and it and it started me on this on this path, which yeah, I'm still on today. It's quite quite mind blowing. But that's incredible, isn't it? Because if you had said, especially as well, I think the fact that your dad did a PhD, you know, and this was very much, and you obviously you're very close with your parents, to actually be mm. offered something like that and turn it down when it when you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do as well, that was so brave. But again, this is exactly what you're saying, is isn't it? You know, you have to really be true to yourself and go with what you really feel is best for you and only you know what's best for you. You're so right, Ellie. I think one of the things I've learned in my journey so far, my limited journey, but one of the things I have learned is so many people make compromises on their life. In fact, I would say the vast majority of people make compromises on things that they know they really want to do, but they think I better do what the society thinks I need to do. And so we live our lives so so tied to this concept of not showing up as our true selves in the world and i see so many people who you know are either struggling with that and trying to come to a place where they they can be authentic they can be their authentic self in the world and um and really for me it's become a mission to try to help those people well really you know everyone but help particularly those people who are stuck um you know, maybe they've had dreams that they've always wanted to live, but they just their life hadn't panned out the way they expected and say to them, it's still there waiting for you. 
if you're willing to make those decisions. Sometimes they're really hard decisions. Um, and I know that I've made quite a few in my life where I've had to just trust that, you know, I know down the road that I'll look back. And actually, when you look back through your life, and maybe maybe you've done this as well, Ellie, but when you look back through your life and you think about all the big decisions you made, how many of them do you, do you actually regret? Yeah, it's true, though, isn't right. it? It's, you sort of regret what you don't do more than what you do do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, so keeping on this, and so so from your travels, you did build up your web company. Mm-hmm. That's what happened next. But then... And again, I'm not sure exactly, you'll have to tell me how, because this is just amazing. You also formed the Urban Myth Club. (laughs) (laughs) So for the lovely listeners, the Urban Myth Club is a a band. And as I understood it, it was all different musicians who all came together. I think, were you at this stage based in Oxfordshire? Um, I was actually based in Cambridge. Sorry, No, no, it's fine. My my writing partner um, was based in Oxford. And so we we set up this band, but it was virtual. It was like, again, very early days. It was 2004. Um, and we decided that we were going to create music using the Internet, which at the time was ridiculous. Yeah. Like, who does that? I yeah. mean, now, of course, that's what everyone does. Um, but, yeah, before I, I'd moved to Cambridge because I, I I lived through the the beginning of the Internet. I was with one of the biggest Internet companies. Well, it was the biggest Internet company in the world at the time, right at the beginning of the Internet revolution. Um, and so I'd lived through that for a number, you know, I think through about four or five years. That was my corporate jaunt, as it were, which was incredible, incredibly mind blowing. But then I always knew at the back of my mind, this, again, this is another example of following your heart. I loved music since I was very, very young. I used to bash around on the piano in my parents' house. It would drive them nuts because it was a racket. Um, why they put it in the central hallway of the house, I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> couldn't plug headphones in How at lovely. the time. So I always loved music. And um, I had some success with this with this web company. And it gave me the opportunity to kind of step away from the day-to-day running of that to play with music. So I didn't really have many... I knew I wanted to, I mean, I would love, I would have loved it at the time to have been successful, but I just wanted to play with it to see what I could do because um, I did have some confidence issues around music. I was never, I'd given up grade one, grade one piano when I was about seven. So I didn't have any formal training. And, but I, I wondered if I could kind of learn how to do it. And so I, I, I literally sat down with a manual one day with a software program that I had called <laughs> Cubase. And I, and I learned how to, you know, create music on a computer. Um, and then that led to me eventually, I mean, it's a long story, but I eventually formed Urban Myth Club, which was my first kind of commercially successful band, if you like. Yeah. You say commercially successful. I mean, you're being very modest with a lot of what you're saying. You played at Glastonbury three times, <laughs> three times. Yeah. That's amazing. It, well, this, this, okay. So this is all part of my experiment. I mean, you, you, you know, uh, as, I know as about as your anyone, experiments, which yeah, we're going to be so coming well, on to. There's a theme about experience in my life. And I see life as a big experiment. Too many people worry worry about failure in life and therefore they don't try things because they worry about failing we have this big idea of failure and it's bad i say to my kids when we sit around at dinner i say what did you fail at today i celebrate the fact when my kids mess up and when i mess up because it means we're trying and so for me i love to think of everything as a big experiment so music was a big experiment for me i didn't know 
I didn't know if it would become successful. I didn't even know if there'd be one person out in the world that would actually enjoy any of the music I wrote. But I allowed myself to experiment. And, you know, what happened was um, <laughs> experimented with dreams as well. So I decided to write a list of 10 incredible things I'd love to happen in music. And they were bonkers, bonkers big. I mean, hear your music on the radio. Um, hear your music on a TV show. Play Glastonbury was at the top of that list. <laughs> I had no idea how to play Glastonbury. I used to sit and watch. I would get collie wobbles whenever I watched Glastonbury. I would get, I would get nervous um, because of the fact I knew it was one of my dreams. And I knew often when I thought about putting my mind to something, it would often somehow transpire. And a couple of years, I remember watching Glastonbury one year in a, in a, um, a park, one of those ho ho holiday parks in a, a static like RV caravan with my wife. And we'd driven past all the Glastonbury traffic um, on the way to in, on the way to Cornwall. And I remember sitting there watching. I can't remember who was playing. It was kind of late nineties, I think. And I just said, to, I turned to my wife and I said, "One day, Jenny, one day, I'm going to be there." And I didn't, again, I was just kind of, but the craziest thing then happened is that we worked for two years on the album. We had half an hour's worth of material, half an hour. And I contacted Glastonbury as our band's agent, okay? Because I thought, well, they're not going to, they're not going to take someone on if you, if you rang up and said, oh, I'm, I'm in a band. Can we play? Yeah. I mean, no one's been <laughs> so I rang up as the agent of Urban Myth Club, which Very I good. was. I mean, you know, yeah. I was also happened to be half of the band. But yeah. and I and I and I said, you know, we've, we've got this. We, we think we've got this really exciting project. And, you know, and I sent them these six tracks as a demo CD. And then I hassled this this guy a couple of times to see if if he was interested. And the second conversation we had he basically said, so I've got you down for the uh, eight o'clock on the Friday night. And I and I said, uh, oh, uh, how long's the set? And he said, 60 minutes. <gasps> and this was three months away. Now, considering we'd spent two years making, managing to make 30 minutes of music, <laughs> we then had. You were going to be three busy. Months. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, our second ever gig was Glastonbury. And the first ever gig we did was the warm-up because we had to make sure it all worked. Oh my so goodness. we were flying by the seat of our pants, but then something crazy happened. As soon as we were booked for Glastonbury, all these other festivals started reaching out because they were like, who are these guys? We were on the bill, it was on the post in the poster and 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 then we got booked for the big chill, which was in front of like thousands of people as our second third gig after Glastonbury. And then it just started to snowball. And I just literally ran with it. I was flying by the seat of my pants. But, you know, sometimes if you're willing to allow yourself to dream and to ask the cheeky questions, sometimes these things can happen. And I've seen it happen again and again in my life. And and I really want to share this with people because it, it really, when you put yourself in a different mindset, incredible things can happen in your life. And life becomes this incredible adventure. Um and yeah, so so it was just building on all of those experiences. And Glastonbury was, you know, we were backstage hanging out with like, I was I was like chatting with um, Amy Winehouse <laughs> backstage at Glastonbury. It was just bonkers. Comparing so, notes. well, it, well, not really, because she was like, I mean, she was like a <laughs> megastar, you know. But um, but you know, to meet her a year a year or two before she passed away, again, all these interesting connections about mm. 
you know, always with this idea of like, what's the bigger picture of life? That's, that's really what I've always been exploring. And, um, and now it's my mission to kind of share it with others. Yeah. But what, I mean, what an inspiration, because how many people would think that if you're in a band, oh, I'd love to play at Glastonbury. Oh, don't be so ridiculous. And obviously your wife, you know, again, this is, comes back to as well, being surrounded by people who truly believe, you know, in you as well. The fact that, you know, you you said that and it'd be like, oh, I can just imagine so many people saying, oh, well, that's just so ridiculous. Don't be so ridiculous. As we all go on to the writing of the books, oh, everyone says they can write a book. But you you mm. actually, you had your band, you asked and they said yes. And it's like, yeah. wow, it does sometimes just happen like that. And also, obviously, then you went back again and again. So it, it really set you off on your way, didn't it? It did. It became... It's kind of funny because a lot of people think about having to build a career in something and, and spend years and years and years getting to a point where doors start to open. And for me, the door opened straight away. And it became, I mean, it's a kind of an ongoing joke about me playing Glastonbury because anyone who listens to the, the podcast I'm, I'm part of, but really having that as a kind of um, a calling card, it opened so many other doors and it made things so much easier to kind of get noticed Um you know, whether it was, you know, our song going to number one on iTunes. It, I mean, you know, I'm sure the guy stuck it on the front page of iTunes because he read the bio that we'd play Glastonbury, right? Yeah. So there, all of these. So I learned this this really important lesson through this, which is if you're willing to go for one of your dreams, no matter how crazy it might seem, if you're willing to go, the incredible thing is there's something beyond that. Yeah. Like we always think of our dream as this kind of ultimate epic thing that we're aiming for our life goal but you know what when you hit it it doesn't just stop there there's something beyond it and i call it the dream of the dream and it's it starts a chain reaction in your life of of new, new things happening and so that's why you can kind of look at people like we look in the world at people like elon musk who had an idea for you know setting up um, a payment company or you know because he's founded paypal but now he's flying people to mars potentially and it and it's you know he didn't probably think about getting people to mars when he was trying to work out how to help someone send one dollar to each other using paypal but it's that's the bit that also fascinates me what is what lies beyond the dream so if you're willing to go for that big dream even if you get close to it it, it opens up all these incredible doors and you can't talking about chapters in a book it's a bit like you don't quite know what the next chapter is going to be after that chapter starts yeah. Like someone who writes a book sometimes doesn't quite know how the end of the book, how the end of the book will look like. Stephen King's a great example. You know, he, he starts with a what if statement, um, what the ending's going to be. And none of us know what the ending's going to be or the pinnacle, if you like, of these experiences are going to be in our life. Yeah, it goes a bit back to what you're saying, isn't it? When you're thinking about what's beyond space and if it's that question, and it's that mindset, isn't it? So it's just, yeah. again, if you live in a very blocked, closed off way, often you're mm -hmm. limiting yourself, aren't you? Which is, this is, we, we will slowly get there. We'll get there, Mark, yeah. what you are doing now. Well, it's, but it's so important what you said, though, Ellie, because it is about that. It's about, and it's not, for me, it's not just about this lifetime. No. It's not just about you know, we we reach a certain age, our body runs out, our wears out, and then we die, and then we're either put in the ground or turned into a pile of ash. That, you know, there's some, for me, there's something so much bigger, and whatever we're doing in this adventure we're on right now in, in these kind of skin suits, as I call them, you know, there's something bigger out there, and, and that fascinates me as well, because, you know, none of us know what that is, and uh, and 
Mm. No, and even even sort of still here, I love that in the skin suits. But you know, um, you you leave things. That, you know how you're living your life. You're teaching your children so much, and that they'll teach their children. So even that, that just you're this kind of this spirit and this essence is always going to live on in some way if you do it right. So that's a yeah, it's amazing. But can I just so let me just so we've got the whole scene set before we move on to the next chapter. So did you still have your web web company? Because obviously you've left the corporate life. You set up your web company. Mm. Then you had the music. You were still living in England at this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously you're in Canada now. So when did you move to Canada? And obviously you mentioned your lovely wife, Jenny. And did you have mm. any children at this stage? We did, yeah. We we lived in Cambridge for in England for 15 years. And my wife, Jenny, was from Canada. Um, and that's a whole other story. We haven't probably got time for that one in this <laughs> with how we met. But um, she came over and you know, took a chance on me and came and came to England, like left her family and, wow. and came and, and lived with me. And then we had, we got married and we had three beautiful children. And when our eldest was nine, we decided, well, the universe decided actually for us, but we were trying to move to Cornwall and Devon, which is where we wanted to kind of set up a homestead and do the whole good life, um, which is something that's always attracted me. Yeah. And it just wasn't happening. We like, house after house after house that we tried to get just kept falling through and after four years of trying I just said I'm done (laughs) I'm done and that night someone called us up and said oh I hear you might be moving we're looking to rent a house so we decided literally on a whim three kids you know two up to age nine we decided in that moment we were going to move to Canada for a two-year adventure right and uh, we literally packed up our house in one month all our stuff was following us over and we got on a plane and we flew uh, to Vancouver Island which uh, my wife had never actually been to even though she was Canadian she'd never actually been been here and I'd been here one rainy uh, day when I was over in Vancouver as a student um, and didn't even realize there were mountains and even an ocean to be honest because I mean I knew there was an ocean because we'd come over on a ferry but it was so foggy <laughs> we couldn't see anything so I, didn't like? really, I didn't see it I didn't see one of the most beautiful places on the planet mm. um but I had a connection with something about this place drew me drew me here so we came over and this is the this is the genuine story we landed in Victoria airport I had vomit all over my uh jeans because my youngest threw up on the landing like oh, coming yes. into land she yeah. threw up so I'm covered in sick I'm sorry oh. to be graphic well, but let's paint the picture not the greatest start yeah I'll paint the <laughs> picture for you um and we had hired a car for two weeks a rental car and we had one night booked in a travel lodge we had no idea where we were going to live Amazing. or stay we stood in the car park that night looking for our rental car with three very, very tired and crying children. And my eldest said, Daddy, what are we doing here? And I looked at my wife and I thought, yeah, I said, she's got a point. What are we doing yeah. here? But it was a kind of a continuation of this idea of just trusting, trusting in your life, trusting your intuition. I never once questioned during that insane packing up um, of the house and and not really even thinking about what we're doing. I never once questioned that we were making the wrong decision. I just it just felt it was the right thing that we had to do. And I had no idea why. People were saying, Mark, why are you leaving? 
why you we'd been in this in this town for 15 years just outside Cambridge and I'd set up a charity called Food Share which had got really it started to get really big um we had um oh, all kinds of incredible people like illuminary people who were kind of you know patrons and this it was growing we'd been on gardeners question time and we had thousands of kids growing food and I literally didn't I didn't walk away from it because it's still going but I just knew I had to go to Canada and I, and people say, why are you going? And I said, I don't know, but I'm looking forward to finding out. And that really has become a mantra in my life. I don't know why I'm doing this or this doesn't seem logical, but I'm looking forward to finding out why it's something I'm being called to do. When you arrived there, did you have any idea what you wanted to do as your work? Well, I knew I, we just finished our second album and so I was pretty burnt out with music. So I decided that I was going to let music sit for a bit. Um, and I knew that I was moving into a new phase of my life around my what I call my life work. Um, in my early 20s, I started doing seminars around um, a concept I developed um, at War and was inspired by, I should say, um, called 4000 Saturdays. Um, and it was this idea that we only have on average 4,000 Saturdays in our lifetime. And I started doing a lot of work, actually BBC, I did a series on the BBC, um, which went out to, you know, the southeast of England, um, which was an incredible experience at such a young age. But I always felt like I was too young to really be talking about the real big picture stuff. But when I moved to, to Canada in my early 40s, I... Uh, actually late 30s, I kind of started thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm able to talk a little bit more on this but it still felt a bit too you know felt a bit too young which is kind of a silly question a silly thing to say but I need I felt like I needed more life experience so I started coaching and then coaching became really my outlet to working with individuals on every level whether it was I was coaching um, people with cancer I was coaching uh, top, top executives I started to coach some pretty amazing musicians and artists um, and so I built this coaching practice, which is um, really how I got into this type of work, I would say. And and I took it I took it very piecemeal. Um, you know, it took a while. It took a couple of years to get kind of settled in Canada and get everything set up. Um, but then something incredible happened in my life. Um, I had always said to people, I don't know why we're coming here, but I'm looking forward to finding out. Um, and I remember one day. My wife was, um, I'd, I'd had a, I'd had a, an annual checkup at the doctors at 40, which is really unusual because in England, you don't get annual checkups until you, I think at least 50. And I went and I came home and I said, well, oh, that's great. We just got like, got checked over and, you know, you know, it was really good. And I said to my wife, I said, maybe, you know, maybe you should consider, you should go and have one as well. And she went, oh, okay. Um, anyway couple of months passed in a busy mum Jen, Jen was a full-time mum um which is the most incredible job in the world mm. I now know um and she went to the doctors and just as she was leaving she just turned back to the doctor and said oh I have actually been having a bit of trouble um you know like you know I have a bit of trouble with something and, and the, the doctor said, oh, we'll just do a quick there's a quick and easy test for that and then a couple of days later, she got a phone call and the phone, the doctor said, uh, the doctor's assistant said, you need to come in straight away. And she burst into tears. And I didn't know what was going on. Anyway, she went in uh, to the doctors and 
she basically was told that there was there was something was up and they then went and did some additional tests and ended up finding out that she actually had colon cancer oh, my. so this was two years into being in Canada on this big adventure with our young family mm. and do you know what's amazing Ellie is that when I look back on it if we hadn't have moved to Canada if we hadn't have followed our intuition my wife would have been dead quite quite a lot sooner then when she did eventually pass away, which was five years later. But we got five years together because they discovered, due to that you know, regular checkup, mm. they discovered that she had a tumour. Mm. And so when I look back on it all, I feel incredibly blessed, actually, that we did get that time. Yeah. Um, but through that journey, through that journey, um, some very incredible things happened. Um, when I was in my 20s, I mentioned earlier that I was I was doing this 4,000 Saturdays work around, and what 4,000 Saturdays was, is around this idea about getting people to not fear their mortality. And I did a lot of work. I wrote a lot. I kind of philosophized about it. And I wrote so much about it. And I read books, like read books on life and death and went really deep on it. And I eventually came to this conclusion that we think, we all think that we fear death and that we fear dying. And so many of us live our lives in that fear. We, the things that we do in our life are out of fear of mortality and death, that we're going to lose our life. And I came to this conclusion through all this work that I've been doing, and it's still a continuing journey, that it's not that we fear death but we fear not having lived. Yeah, totally. We fear not having lived. And I can tell you that despite losing Jen at age 45, she lived the most incredibly rich 45 years. In fact, she lived longer than most people ever live on this planet. Mm. And I remember us having those conversations. And so it's so it, it blows me away that back in my 20s, I was going deep on death and mortality and mm. asking these big, well, really since I was four, but <laughs> asking these big questions starting in my 20s, you know, as an adult thinking mind, if you like, thinking that my life's work was about going out into the world and trying to encourage people to look at their life differently and to look at how they're living and whether their life is purpose and meaning and whether they've really worked hard to discover why they're here and what they can contribute to the world and how they can change people's lives. But little did I know that all of that work was preparing me for the most challenging, incredibly difficult time of my life when I had a family, three young children. Um, and I, I've got to say this, Ellie, I have learned so much through this journey. Mm. And I used to say to people that 4,000 Saturdays is not something to be scared of because a lot of people freak out when they think, oh, 4,000, is, is that what we get? Mm. And I say, no, that's not what you get. You might get a 4,000. You might get 4,100. You know, in Jen's case, you might only get, you know, 
I don't even know what number is, 3,000 or whatever. But the point is, is that for anyone who gets more than the average, they're now living for that person that didn't. Yeah. So every single day, I remember when Jen passed away, one of the first things I did is I went into my calendar. She was about nine months older than me. And I went into my calendar and I picked the exact day that I would have lived the same number of days Jen had lived on the day that she died. And I made a promise to her and myself that from that day onwards, I would live each day for her as well, because that's the day that she didn't get. And so, so my life has got even more meaning now. In a world where I should be crushed, I, sh I should be crushed. I should be an alcoholic, a drug addict. My kids should be off the rails. Uh, we should have lost everything. But I feel more on purpose today than I've ever felt. And I've got Jen. I really have Jen's journey, her, her journey as the gift that she's given me. To, to have these kind of conversations. Well, thank you for having the conversation because I know I know one of the things as well, You, when we spoke about if we were gonna talk about this or not, is you absolutely, and I know I've got really kind listeners, I, I know my listeners and I, and I know how lovely they are, but you don't want anyone feeling sorry for you, do you, you and your family? Because it's, because, you know, exactly what you say, and I can imagine, and excuse me, sort of, I'm being very sort of presumptuous here, but I'd imagine you and Jen had real conversations and you looked at you know you faced it because of everything that you were saying with your background and she sounds amazing and I'm sure was just as open to talking about this and isn't it true that sometimes if you ignore the inevitable it becomes so much worse and then that's when it all spills oh. out and then that's where you get your addictions and that's where you get your pain yeah but actually if you you cope with it to get not cope with it but work through it together and obviously you've done this with your children as well, it's a totally mm. different outcome. It's not any easier, I'm, I can't even imagine, but look at how you are able to talk about it and, and how, what you're, which we haven't even got onto yet, which we will, but all the amazing work you're also doing with the books and everything and with your children, it's, it's incredible. And you wouldn't have this life if it wasn't for that. Yeah, I think, I think it's really, um, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I'm not gonna sit here and pretend that it's, it's, it's been, easy it's been the most difficult uh, seven years of my life um but i do think that we have a choice i couldn't choose I, I think one of the hardest things i had to go through was this sense of letting go um as a guy i think i always laugh about men but they always want to fix stuff <laughs> whether it's a shelf that's wonky or or their partner's what life right they want to fix that and i'm a coach for goodness sake i mean i, I do fixer. this for a living <laughs> right i try and help people with their lives um and i do really feel that one of my biggest journeys through losing jen was having to let go of so many things letting go of firstly that i couldn't fix the cancer couldn't fix it that was one thing I I didn't have the skills to take that away and it humbled me to realize that sometimes you just have to be with that person um and honestly I, I have so so much that I need to share about this Ellie I wish we could do like 20 apocalypse I have so many learnings that I think will help people um, I want you to come back already. Of, I already want well, a part two. 
one of one of which i mean again i don't want to kind of just jump around a bit but there's so many messages i need to get out into the world about this for people who are struggling with cancer and grief um and this is a really important one so i'm just going to let it out now that when people would say to me i hear your wife has cancer or i'm so sorry to hear about jen's cancer i would say my wife does not have cancer jen does not have cancer her colon does mm. And I started to a campaign, like a mission to try to get people to start separating the person from the, the disease or the challenge. And it doesn't matter what challenge it is, whether it's colon cancer, whether it's depression, yeah. whether it's lack of money, whether it's suicidal, like everything that people are going through, you have to realize that the pure person still exists. Yeah. Right. Jen was always there. Jen. Yeah. Jen's body was breaking down. Jen's body was getting covered with cancer, riddled with cancer. But Jen was still there every single day. Mm. And I got to spend. Through her journey, actually, over the five years, the last three months of her life, I got to spend by her bedside in palliative care. Mm. And most people who go into palliative care apparently last around their bodies last around two weeks. I got to spend three months every single day around these palliative care nurses, around Jen, around all the other patients that I kind of, some of them I got to know. And it was like, just like going to Glastonbury was like escaping the world for a, a week. It was just, a, you know, it's like you leave planet Earth for a week mm. and it's just this incredible environment. But being in a palliative care hospital and observing and sitting and thinking and talking and writing and drawing. I started to learn to draw when I was there for some reason. I just suddenly had this and doing puzzles, <laughs> did lots of puzzles in palliative care. But I got to kind of live in this environment, this 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 different world. And those three months fundamentally changed how I see the world. Mm. Because I remember sitting once looking at my dying wife and realizing how little of what we stress about every single day matters. Yeah. And how much of our life is spent living what I think of as a 99.9% .9 superficial level. Yeah. And we get so stressed and so worried and so tied up with the drama of our lives that we're missing the genuine beauty that is in every single life that is on this planet today. There is not one person, no matter how poor they are, no matter how rich they are, no matter how many problems they've had, there is not one person that that doesn't have beauty in their life on some level. And it's so easy for us to get drawn into this world of um, the drama you know, and the, the problems and the, the politics and the diseases and everything. And we get so sidetracked from the fact that actually right now in this moment, here we are, right, me and you having a chat about the beauties of life. And the thing that really cemented all this together was one moment when I left Jen's room and I got to know the nurses really well. And, and they were really sad for us. I mean, our kids would show up every day to sit with their mum mm. and 
try and chat and they'd be running around and it was very unusual for them to see a, a, such a young family in palliative care most people there were had had incredible lives they may be in their 80s and 90s you know and it was sad but they'd had a good life and it, for the nurses a lot of them were mums a lot of them were young mums and they saw my you know three my, my I think seven-year-old my youngest was at that time and um, they were sad for us and I remember walking out of that room once and this nurse saw me and I was I was probably crying um, and she just hugged me she held me um, and she said to me life is so hard and I stopped her and I said you know actually death is hard but life is beautiful yeah it's true and in that moment it made me understand that even in this incredibly difficult situation that I was facing, losing my wife of nearly 20 years, we were so close to our 20th anniversary. We had a picture of the honeymoon place we'd went to and I said to her, if you can make it to 20, we'll go back there. And we had this oh. picture, she looked, she looked at it every day in St. Lucia, it was oh. beautiful. But it made me realize that despite just how awful this situation was Jen and I in those three months and in our life together had found the beauty of life and not even death could take that away from us so I, I really want people to hear these words because we get so caught up in the trivial and life is waiting for us. The beauty of life is waiting for us, but we have to find it. We have to find it and we have to spend time thinking about our life, writing about our life, dwelling on our decisions, thinking about our future, spending time with our kids, just loving people and loving ourselves, loving ourselves because we are the hardest on ourselves. People are the, they're their own worst critics. And everyone I work with, I see it over and over again. Love yourself, because if you can't love yourself, how can you even start to love others? Really? So, yeah, I mean, that that's just, just a tiny, if I could just give you a, from the vial of lessons I've learned in those three months, I've just given you not even a drop. Mm. But it's quite incredible to have experienced that. And, and now... I have a life mission to get on with. I've got work to do. <laughs> You're busy. You're busy. I've got no, but I've got. I. I. I need. I need people to get this. I want people to understand this. I want people to realise that their lives matter and their happiness matters, and that they have beauty in their life if they're willing to look for it. Do you find that most people? That you who come to you, I suppose they're coming to you already anyway. And we'll move on to this when we when we move on to your work. But do you find people are up for really wanting to change? You know, do you think it is possible? Some people you see in the depths of their, like you say, in their dramas and their pain, and it's, you know, oh, you know, it's just they feel like no, well, it's all right for you to say. But I suppose if you speak from your experience and what you've been through, nobody can argue with you, can they? I guess I've been given a glimpse into a different perspective on the world. And I think everyone, everyone is desperate to change. And actually those that are struggling 
really struggling what 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 they're saying what they're crying out with is they're crying out for help they're crying out because they're they need help when someone posts something on say facebook for example whatever they're posting is one thing what's underneath the post is the real reason they're posting so I've, i'm fascinated by it all i'm i like to observe i like to watch um but yeah i think everyone everyone is struggling to find that place it's part of the struggle of life it's part of the magic and the mystery of life and and then we and we all express it in different ways i even believe i even believe ellie that people that say to me i don't believe in anything beyond this lifetime they're struggling with that as well yeah they're struggling with that because what they're saying is i don't want to believe there's anything because i fear I fear that there might be something beyond that and that that's unknown to me. And I like to live in this world of mystery and magic and awe. Because when I stand back and look at my life and everyone's lives, I do try to see what's really going on. Not the thing that we're all used to. We're all used to watching everyone walking around and doing their things. We, we normalize everything in our life. I even remember looking out of a bus and seeing a guy getting on a bicycle and cycling off. And I thought, if I were an alien and I just experienced that, I'd be like, what? What is that thing? And who's? how did they stay on it? Because it, the tyres are like that. They're tiny. <laughs> and so I like to try and look at the world like that with everything because we have normalised everything in our world. Mm. I mean, here we are chatting. You're in England. I'm in Canada. I know. We Vancouver thing again. Called the inter- thing called the internet. I mean, we all just do it now. We don't think. About it. But like, come on. Yeah. I mean, really? It's amazing. I'm I'm speaking into this piece of metal and you're able to hear me. Like, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back to the miracles of what we're experiencing in the world. Like, it's everywhere around us every single day, yet we choose to focus on, you know, the drama and the problems. Yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Can I just ask you this? I hope you don't mind me asking. When you said about you don't know why, well, when you arrived in Canada and Vancouver, sort of like what brought us here? But obviously you've stayed in Vancouver. Do you think it was because you say, Jen, she, you know, she was Canadian. That That's another reason as well. You're there and you're part of where, I know she, she didn't come from Vancouver, but you're in this very, very special place now. And perhaps it would have been very different not only wouldn't you've had her for so long, but you have a very different life there than perhaps you would have here and you perhaps wouldn't have made that move after her. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. I know that, I mean, the reason that we did move, apart from the fact that we'd always wanted to kind of do another big adventure, we wanted to give the children an opportunity to experience the other half of their their heritage because, like, obviously they're they're half half British, half Canadian. and so that was the reason that we thought it would be fun, you know, despite having kind of uprooting the entire family from all their friends and, and, and the community we were a part of. I felt that it was important for them to experience that. But I've always been drawn to Canada um, from a very young age. And I, I, I never really knew why. I never really knew why. But um, I manufactured in my degree an opportunity to come and spend a year studying here. And that gave me kind of a little preview. But it's for me... Um, living in a place where you're inspired with everything around you, the ocean, the mountains, nature, um, I think it helps to feed into that opportunity to stand back and breathe. Mm. You know, you know that everyone has those moments where they would love to just stand on the top of a mountain and just, yeah. just breathe in that air and think about life. I think because of where I'm at now in my life, I really appreciate having that opportunity and 
everyone has their own place that they're drawn to, I think. And not that anyone should ever go to that place to escape. A, I hear a lot of people going to somewhere because they need to escape a current life. But wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. Right. So for me, it was just about combining this opportunity to to think and 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 read and and write um, in a location where I feel the kids can 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 grow up and 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 see a different part of the world, but also um, so I can experience this incredible beauty that we have in this world as well. It's about, like you say, not just finding the beauty in your life, but seeing the beauty all around you. And I get to experience it here every single day. Yeah, yeah, but you don't need to feel, you don't feel the need to escape. Like we see so many people want to, they have these lives and then they want to go away every few weeks because it's too do much. You, do you know what we've done? We've moved here and we don't, I've never actually gone on holiday since wow. I've been here in 10 years. When I say I haven't gone on holiday, I haven't got on a plane and flown to like, Greece or Mexico or Bahamas, we just go camping yeah. here. <laughs> we, go, we go we go ten minutes up the road, yeah. and it's like we're a million miles from anywhere. Oh, and it's, yeah, I would. And so, yeah, I, I think, but I, but I also appreciate how fortunate I am to have this. But I also will say, you know, I I I followed my heart. I took the mm. decision. Like, I I find it's really important when I talk to people about this that I can talk with authenticity and say. I did this and that's why I'm sharing this with you. Yeah. Um, it was designed in some ways, you know, it wasn't an accident that we arrived here. Um, and there's some other incredible stories, like tying all that together again for another time, but I keep seeing this happen over and over in my life. So um, I think it's something we can all tap into if we're willing to, to go there. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of, you mentioned before struggles and where you want to go. Now, moving on to the next chapter, this is where our paths crossed. I say our paths crossed. I came across you and uh, the lovely Mark Stay and your work that you've been doing at the bestseller experiment. Now, um, you just recently celebrated your fifth year anniversary. So basically, if I explain to my lovely listeners who may not know about it. So the bestseller experiment started, as I understand, as a podcast. And the idea was, so you've known Mark for a long time and you were going to see, it was an experiment, could you write and market a best-selling book in one year? And then as you were writing your book together, Back to Reality, you were then inter interviewing all different people from traditional publishing, but independent publishing like I am, but talking about all the ups and downs and sort of talking about it in a very realistic way. And you were actually going through it yourself. So that starts off. But five years on, I mean, it's absolutely thriving, isn't it? You've had so many different people. You have these huge name authors on there. And one of my favourites was Joanna Harris. I've even been on there, but I wasn't one of the huge names. But um, but it's... it's not about it's not about how huge you are; it's how uh, awesome you are. Uh, <laughs> thank you. You can definitely come back for a part two. Um, oh. But but yeah. So and and so I just will spring in here. So so when obviously you know that I've been you know re I was rejected for years. And I remember coming across your podcast, and this is, I think, the beauty of podcasts because you, they just didn't exist, and you'd never get it in a magazine article. The and some. There are a couple of episodes in particular. One was with a lady called Angie Marsons, Angela Marsons. And she was talking uh, and talking about her partner, Julie, I think Julia, is that right? Julie. Julie. Yeah, Julie. Julie yeah. And she was basically, she was writing books for 25 years. 
you know, she was doing this, she was doing it, and she kept getting rejected. And and then her, Julie was then like, just come on, leaving out a piece of paper for her. Come on, do it again, do it again. And at the time, you know, I didn't really know that this was a, a fairly standard part of the industry. You hear these stories and people always say, oh, well, JK Rowling got rejected. and But actually you didn't. And so I was writing these books, getting rejected, and I felt a total wally, to be honest. And I actually didn't tell that many people I was even writing books because I was thinking like, God, I'm clearly utterly rubbish and who do I think I am I want to be a writer and you know I didn't go to Oxford and do English or anything like that but I always wanted to write books and when I heard that and I also heard Mel Sharrett as well and she had 10 years and you hear, and I remember hearing that one with Angela Marsons I was running near my mum's house in Berkshire and I remember stopping and thinking oh thank goodness you know it's not just me and I wrote to her I wrote to Angela Marsons as I wrote to Mel Sharrett I stalk your guests as well I do I and, love it yeah I do I do because it's like and today literally Actually, today, those stories, and I think of them, uh, and I, and I, and in fact, I've got a little bit of something I would like to. I think, God, who could I ask? And I think I wonder if Mel Sharrett would mind if I me- would message her because obviously she doesn't message um, message back. But this is the beauty of what you've created. And I found my amazing book editor through you from hearing him on the podcast. But you've created this that this is it is truly helping lives and you're having people who started off writing and now five years on they've gone on to be huge bestsellers themselves as well so I mean this is amazing so here I am chatting on I'm going to let you talk now so how did it all come about with you and Mark? Well I guess one of the things one of the things that I'd always wanted to do was write a book I mean it's like it's part of the experiment of life you know I wanted to make an album wanted to write a book I wanted to run a business and wanted to move country I wanted to to try things out and but but book writing like music had always been a theme I'd always loved books since I was very young and the podcast came about because I discovered one day that Mark who Mark Stay the other Mark um he he went to the the other school the school down the road the one that (laughs) was the big rival and we we didn't like him much and they really (laughs) didn't like us but I actually had friends in both schools and so I started to get to know Mark on a very casual basis, kind of around that time when we were in sixth form, you know, like that's grade 11, 12 for North American listeners. And we'd go to part, you know, to see each other at parties. And we were kind of like, though he was a friend, of friend of friends, right? So, um, and we never really had like a, a really kind of deep conversation about life or anything. It was really weird. We just kind of knew of each other. And one day when I was in Canada and I was thinking about writing a book. I'd noticed that Mark Mark had posted up that he'd, he'd had a movie made. And I was like, what? what? <laughs> Hang on, rewind. What, how did how did this guy from, you know, the school down the road end up having a Hollywood movie with uh, Ben Kingsley and Gillian Anderson as it's the lead? Huge. I thought, blimey, very impressed. And I always, I've always, whenever anyone had does something incredible, I, I always want to understand how they did it. So I, I actually got in contact with Mark. I said, hey, Mark, I said, what? I want to, I've got to hear about this. And so we jumped on, on Skype and we were just chatting. Um, and that's really how we then started to chat. And we, we found that we kind of really enjoyed each other's company and we had a mutual friend and between the three of us, we thought maybe we should try and do a podcast about something. Yeah. And then eventually Mark, Mark and I, the other guy was too busy. Um, Mark and I decided that we were going to try and do something around book, book writing because Mark worked in a, in the big publishing company, Orion. Um, he had written a book because of the film that he had. He had to write a book in kind of retrospect. 
um and that was so he'd been through the process once and i said well look, how about i be the really dumb thick one who <laughs> comes on like i have not a clue how to do this but i've always had the dream of writing and how about you kind of guide me and we'll kind of do this adventure but i'll also be the optimistic one that we're going to actually make this happen and mark yeah. by his nature was very pessimistic it was like oh this is you have no idea how hard it is to write yeah, but you played at glastonbury Right. Well, but that was nothing to do with writing a book. I mean, you know, Still. you might be able to play a keyboard or a guitar, but um, and that really started off this adventure. And then some incredible things happened um, very early on in the podcast when the, the podcast went viral on episode seven with Brian Cranston uh, went worldwide. It was the number one trending story on Facebook for two days. Our interview with Brian Cranston went went on Fox News. It went on BBC News. It was in every newspaper in the world, pretty much. And so Mark and I were just kind of hanging on again, hanging on to our coattails, thinking, oh, my gosh, what is going on? And so, yeah, it's now five years on. We've written a best-selling book. Um, we've interviewed, I think, over 350 incredible guests, including yourself, Ellie. And, <laughs> and, and we're having people coming back on the show, like some really amazing big names coming back you know so we get to look retrospectively with about how the last few years have been as well but the thing that's mind-blowing about this show is that we have collectively interviewed when you take all of the books sold by people on the show the collective book sales are now over one billion books that's across incredible. these authors so we get to chat with some of the most incredible creative minds in the book writing world and we we take everyone on that adventure with us. Yeah, I should point out that's probably half my book sales, but still, you know, I'll let well, you have absolutely. it. Well, absolutely, yeah, I'll let yeah. you have well, it. Well, <laughs> you know, maybe my. I think the should... other half was Mark Victor Hansen, who did the chicken soup for the soul books. That <laughs> yeah. sold. 500 million but, that's but, yeah. amazing but in joking aside you know it it just is it just is amazing because i don't think i've ever got to a point where i actually thought i'd i'd give up but there are days where you feel utterly rubbish about what you're doing and you oh, think yeah. and it's hard isn't it you know you know writing a book is really hard and i'm not saying that as in a but i mean i i love it it's what i want to do and it's absolutely the thing i want to do but it's really tough it's really hard work you don't know if anyone's going to like it but actually you need to write for yourself and all these things that come through you know I listen to you when I'm out running I tend to listen to you on a Thursday and it's like it just often it's amazing it, something comes up and it's exactly what I need to hear and that's hmm. amazing and I it's it's all very and I and I I find it so inspiring hearing the authors who have done so well but also it's so important for somebody like me to to hear the reality and the truth of it all that it's because you start going into that mindset don't you well look at them and it's like what you were saying with the Glastonbury or you know you actually if you believe in it it can happen but it's very easy to start going down yeah. the route of like oh god this is never going to happen to me and I'm just going to be one of those ones you know you can yeah. go completely the wrong way can't you and so this really is I cannot tell you how much it's changing lives like mine so thank you for it mm. I'm so I'm so grateful to hear that, Ellie. I mean, I think from from our perspective, I think the the most amazing thing to hear is how people have broken through some of their challenges. You know, the book that was half written, the book that was never started, the book that was finished and you know given up on. Um, I think for me, the podcast represents part of that bigger picture around doing something which is really valuable and actually creates some not just a legacy for other people that might read your book um you know over time but also i believe the pursuit of writing a book is one of the most incredible things anyone can do in their lifetime because as the writer of that book we are really learning a lot about who we are 
what's important to us and what messages we want to get out into the world. And so in some ways, it's a it's another way of sharing knowledge, wisdom, perplexion, whatever it might be, mystery. And it helps. It, it, it's it's quite an incredible pursuit. And you're right. It's a labor of love. It's we, we never on the podcast make it out to be a you know, an easy thing. And a lot of people think, oh, bestseller experiment. It sounds like, you know, just all about selling books and making loads of money. It's not. I mean, if people listen to the podcast, they'll know that. But the the most important thing is that your book can reach a larger number of people in many ways than you ever could if you individually had to go around the world chatting to everyone. And so I think a book for me represents a part of your life work which can have an incredible influence and impact. And sometimes we just never know. I mean, hearing what you're saying earlier about how the podcast has affected you, you know, we we don't get to necessarily always see that on, no. on the podcast. We know it does, it, it, you know, we do get some incredible emails and, and, and it is incredibly heartwarming. But I just know that those, that's the tip, tip of the iceberg because those are the people who actually reach out to us yeah. to tell us their story. And so... It's like that when you write a book as well. You don't know who your book's going to affect. You don't know already whose lives your book has already changed. Mm. Maybe you'll never find out. No. But just know that it is happening out there in the world and that the work that we put in as writers, the work that you've put in as an author, is one of the most important pursuits that you can do in your life. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think it was LJ Ross on your podcast who talks about the silent reader um, mm. And I always think of that because because I'm actually one of those people I, I and I should do it much more, but I rarely write reviews and I listen to your podcast. And yes, I, I put I um, and you're in my acknowledgments of my next book as well. But um, because I will oh. always put you in my acknowledgments and that's how you knew. <laughs> but I didn't actually write that on a review or email you. And I should have done really because you because you are helping. But you, you know, you've been helping me for years without even knowing it. So if you've been helping <laughs> me, I mean, but to that, be fair, you but, should start charging. But like... <laughs> No, no. But do, do you know, for me, and it's actually it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, I've been contemplating this whole idea of how um, how really at the end of the day you know it's it it, it it it's great it's great yeah if you can earn some income from helping people but at the end of the day what's more important is that you just know that some lives have been changed by the work that you've done and i think you know i say that as a reflection to everyone listening right now like what are you doing today that is changing the life of someone if you're a parent by the way any parents listening Every single thing you say to your child, everything you do for your child, every lift, every hug, every bit of advice, every tear that you wipe, you're changing that child's life. You're changing that child's life. So being a parent is one of the greatest pursuits that you can ever do. I think parents don't get enough credit for the work that they do in the world. And it's just knowing, I think if we all had a bit of knowledge about just how much our lives were and could affect others especially if we follow our heart and know that we're out we're here to kind of be part of that bigger picture um if we if we even had a glimpse of that then we'd all be doing it every single day because we'd be so inspired i think the beauty of having a podcast is that you do get emails from people the beauty of being an author is you do sometimes get emails or you, you meet someone who says wow you know your book I, you might not know this but you know those kind of conversations and for me Everyone should experience that in their life because no one should have to wait until their funeral 
Like I was, I'm always amazed actually, all the amazing things that people say and they get up and say about someone when they're dead. Yeah. Like that very person isn't even there to mm-hmm. hear all those incredible things. No. And it's and so I've always encouraged people. I said if someone's changed your life, even if it's a teacher from 20 years ago, write to them, tell them. Yeah. Because that will be the most important letter, the most important email, text, whatever it might be, that they will ever have got in their year. I promise you. And and we just don't do it no. because, you know. But the the point is, is that be that teacher. And it doesn't. And honestly, the letters are great. The ones that do come are great because they fuel the fire. They keep the fire alive. Yeah. But. It, it doesn't matter, just the knowledge that in some way your life has had some kind of impact, I think is why we're here. Yeah. We have to move from being consumers to contributors. Yeah. And I think so much, so many of us are wrapped up in consumption and ego and status. collecting things. Yeah, status, mm. I think, as well. Status. We're all lost in it. And, you know, the way, when I stand back and look at the world, I think we're getting more lost in it. And mm. I don't want to say that by being, you know, this is Mr. Optimist speaking. Yeah. Um, right. But I do. I do. I look at I look at social media um, and parts of it. I'm not going to I'm not going to say that, you know, you know, a knife can be used for cutting uh, vegetables. It can also be used to hurt someone. I'm mm. not saying social media is a problem, but the, the I, I look at children today. He says, grumpy old man, children today. But we didn't have to grow up with social media. I think it's harder today, mental health crisis that we see around us. There's so many, there's so much more work we have to do. Yeah. As, as um, people who've been, been through these challenges ourselves. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I even look at, I look at the world around me and I see, I see car stickers. I see car stickers that blow me away. Language, which I'm like, there are kids that can read swear words, like MF and stuff like that. Mm. It, we see these, and it's just like, what's hap- where's the, where are things going? You know, I want people to be start living, I know there's so many people living consciously out there, but I think that there are so many people who are so... Um, who are still looking and, 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 and need guidance and need help and need to find that authenticity of why they showed up. Mm. Um, and I hope that, you know, through the podcast, through the work that I do for the rest of my life, however many Saturdays I have, I hope that in some ways I can be a part of that because I think that there's work to be done Yeah, and it's really good work. It's like, it's fulfilling. It's, it's rewarding. It's, I grow through every single person I connect with or to, uh, come into contact with. I learn something from them. And um, I'm just so grateful to, you know, to, to have this opportunity to chat with you, Ellie, because I think that um, life is is a gift that so many people leave it unopened. It really is. It really is. And you just, yeah, I totally agree. And you just see it, don't you? I'm guessing, so moving on to your To Be Continued, so you've obviously, you've got your 4,000 Saturdays work and you've got the amazing mm. best uh, seller um, experiment as well. And you've also got your academy there now, haven't you? So you're helping writers 
uh, that way that both you and Mark are. And I'm presuming with your to be continued, you just want to keep growing all this work that you're doing because it's it sounds like it, you're touching so many people. Well, the thing that I really struggled with all my life is I've always been looking for that one thing that I've wanted to kind of focus on. And I'm kind of coming to terms with the fact that there isn't just one thing because life's a tapestry. Life isn't black or white and put in boxes. There is so many different areas around life that I would like to help people on, whether it's mental health, whether it's grief, whether it's finances, whether it's dreams, whether it's writing, whether it's legacy. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, Parenting, um, you know, so many, so many different things that I would love to share what I've learned on to others. Um, But I'm rapidly coming to the conclusion that and this is an experiment I've been thinking about. In fact, I was just thinking about it this morning before I came on the show. I'm I'm thinking of setting up a, a thing called a life library. And so within 4,000, within my 4,000 Saturdays website, I'm thinking of setting up a life library. And I'm thinking of every single thing that I write, say, thoughts I have during, you know, any time that might pop up. I'm going to start collecting them in the library and I want to invite people again as an experiment to come along and see if that's of any value yeah because if that creates a format and a platform for me to be able to do my work and people be able to come to the life library on any given day and find something that's relevant for them today yeah find something that they're struggling with or find something they want to be inspired about and they can come to that life library, then it might give me the format where I can just literally put all of the things I've written and writing and just and just enable people to to engage with that. Yeah. So I'm my my thinking around that, and, and of course the big thing around that is well, how do you make that sustainable? Because classic thing with podcasts, as you may know, what Ellie, um, they take a huge amount of time. Yes. And we get a lot of people listening but we get a very small percentage of people actually supporting. And this is this is throughout the whole world. And I think we've come to a place in the world where people now expect things for free. And if you don't get for free, then they'll go somewhere else that gives something for free. Because, yeah. And so I'm thinking of trying to actually, as part of the experiment, a new model. And the model is basically, it's kind of based a little bit around the idea of patron and th- those types of things, but, but with a twist. And the idea is, is that obviously I want to help as many people as possible, but I would love to be able to do this for the rest of my life and hire a team to do this as well, which will will need sustaining. So what I'm thinking of doing is saying to to 400 people, and there's a reason this number is important, 400 people sponsoring the Life Library and every one person that sponsors it, they enable 10 other people who can't afford, you know, they might not have the income to, 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 to do a kind of a subscription or whatever but they basically sponsor 10 other people to come into the library and gain access to everything for free and those 10 people when you take the 400 and you think about the 10 that they each sponsor that's 4,000 people so they're linked to 4,000 Saturdays and so I'd like to do this for two reasons one I'd like to find a format where maybe this is how people can start to share their life work over time because I want to build this for my kids as well when I die I want my kids to be able to go to this Mark's life library and go oh here's all the stuff dad 
never told us yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or or try to tell us when yeah. we were you we know 16 but we weren't listening we weren't ready for that we wouldn't want to know about mortgages or <laughs> whatever so I'm thinking of doing this as an experiment to see if it, if it works because if it does I think it might be a model which will help other creators and other people who need to share things yeah. but don't necessarily think oh, I want to spend the next you know six years working on this one specific project um, and let 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 things organically grow and see what's of use, see what's of value. Um, that's amazing. I think that's an amazing yeah. idea. And 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 this has be part of our part too. But to see if it works, because you, your Glastonbury experiment worked, your bestseller yeah. experiment worked. So you need a hat right. trick. So this sounds like it would. But even you could put your music in it and things like that. Yeah, oh, that's you know, everything. everything. I've got so many seminars and videos and and um articles unpublished stuff i've got so much of it already yeah and i want a repository of where to put that but i also then want to say to the group just very much like on the bestseller academy right now we, we're asking people like what do you want what, yeah. what what do you want um and so i'd love to have this group of people gather together if i can ask them the question like what what would you like what's been what's what's most helped to you right now like when covid hit for example i was doing all kinds of um all kinds of breathing meditations with my clients because I just felt a lot of people needed just to, to breathe with me. I know it sounds strange to say that, no, but it, it was hugely helpful. And so I developed a whole concept called Bretham, which is a thing I was doing with groups of people who were showing up all over the world. Someone had just finished work in London and someone was just getting up in Australia. Everyone was in different places. And I would just pull them all together and do this group exercise where we would breathe and ground ourselves before we started doing our work and talking about our lives and dreams and and it kind of developed into a technique now i have not had time to launch that as a project but i have all these recordings so that would go that in going past it's like everything it would. whatever it's a whatever brilliant is idea. value so i i i'm thinking of seriously launching that and that could be the next kind of the second in terms of chapters that could be the second half yeah. hopefully of my life um as i start to build this this library for people yeah. and to access and like i say dream of the dream who knows where that might go maybe some books will come out of that um maybe some you know i'll end up doing some some um now that covid's kind of slowly under control getting out and doing some talks again but because yeah, you do lots of um, talking before didn't you, you were doing i've done a lot i've done a huge amount of yeah seminars and radio and tv and um and it's fun i, I really enjoy it i love engaging with people and so yeah i think i think that that might be the the big next thing and um, and I was going to say, Ali, as just as a thank you for having me on today, I'd like to give you access to all that as well and wow. be one of the first in. I'll be in. I'm, 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 I'm sponsor. I'm, well, I'm sponsoring. I'm going to sponsor the first 400 people or that actually can't, you know, that can't actually afford it. So if, if any of your listeners want to kind of be a part of that, they can yeah. go to to the website. Um, to the 4000 Saturdays website. Yeah, I, it's, it'll be live, I guess, by the time this podcast will be live. But there'll be a little sign-up page. And, and if you're interested in finding out what that's going to be like, then come along for the ride. Because, wow, there you go, lovely um, listeners. I want you to be a part exclusive. of that. Oh, I would love to be. And I'm sure my lovely listeners would love to be as well. I, well, I, when you say about that you like when you do lots of talking, I was going to say, because you're a terrible talker, Mark. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's been very difficult to have this conversation. <laughs> You can't get a word in edgeways. Oh, I love so. it. As you well know, they're the best interviews, the best interviews. So moving on to your acknowledgements, who would you like to thank? Who, I mean, 
you say journey, my goodness me. I mean, you've done all these people's lifetime goal ambitions. You've you've done it. You're doing and you'll continue to do it, but also with the backdrop of everything that's happened as well. So it's just utterly inspiring and amazing. So, you know, who would you do you think really stands out? Are you going to say your, your lovely school teacher? But anyone, you know, the people who have really helped you along the way. Yeah, well, I think all my school teachers... I'd love to think that one or two of them might even be listening. But <laughs> if you are listening, you know, every single teacher's played, has helped. I'm so grateful for because every single teacher's learned, taught me something. Um, all in different ways, all in different ways. I was just thinking the other day about a teacher called Miss Greenhalge that I had, who was my English teacher. And she always encouraged me with creative writing. I've never mentioned her before. So you know, in spirit of like acknowledging people like um, Mrs. Greenhalge is listening, then, you know. <laughs> Here I am. He's doing well. Hundred years on, um, but the I think well, obviously my mum and dad because they've been incredibly supportive. My dad, um, my dad's kind of um, in a place right now where you know the family's struggling with like Alzheimer's dementia, and so that's that's another kind of chapter. And um, but I think you know acknowledging the role that they've played and just I've just always been so grateful and they know that I've written them letters actually when I first became a parent I wrote them a letter thanking them for everything I could ever think of that they'd ever done for me it went on for pages and pages and everyone should do that to their parents if they're still alive um I would like to also I think I'd also like to thank um you know my close friends who've always been there to support me and I've and I really have been incredibly grateful for everyone that supported me with this journey that I've been on having lost lost Jen um because actually you really learn a lot about the kindness of people when you're in a real struggle it actually brought me to tears when people would just bring meals around for example when when we're you know coming back from palliative care it the I tell you, you just, I can't explain the power in those small and sometimes big things that people do, which to them, they don't really think of as much, they're just helping out. But to someone who's in crisis, absolutely incredible. Um, and there's another guy actually that I've acknowledged in the past and he's, he's been, he's been a mentor, he was a mentor of mine whilst he was alive for many, many years. Um, and he didn't know it. Well, he did. But um, and that's Wayne Dyer. Wayne Dyer is a, a, a was a motivational, inspirational writer who I discovered when I was 16. And his life work has been an incredible inspiration. And I've often felt an incredible connection to him. I got the, I was lucky to meet him a couple of times and got, got to know his family as well. But um, he passed away a number of years ago. But he's he's influenced so many people's lives. I mean, he sold millions and millions of books. And there was something about the way that he approached life and the way that he saw life that gave me such a foundational view on things. Um, and so he's played an incredibly big part of my life, as have a lot of authors, actually. But if there was one that I would say was my my biggest mentor and teacher, it was Wayne Dyer. So if Wayne's about and you can hear this. <laughs> You're very grateful. You know, in some ways I do want to carry on. I think the world needs lots more people like him mm. um, I'd love to be a part of that yeah it sounds like um, you will be group. and yeah. obviously your lovely Mark's day I mean I have to, I'm saying it again but I have to thank you both because 
I have to thank you for so much. Maybe Mel Sharrett won't thank you because I keep messaging her and Scott <laughs> Yeah, Pack. I know, right? <laughs> They're like, no, Mark's been, leave Mark me alone. And I have, Mark and I have been on this incredible journey together and Mark was there. Like, I had to stop doing the podcast when Jen got really sick and he basically ran with the podcast for six months on his own, which, I mean, as you know, that's that flying solo is hard. Yeah. Um, but he's he's always he's been so supportive and he's just a, just a genuine amazing guy. Like the, the 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 episode coming out next week, we're doing the episode the morning he discovers he has COVID. Right, and he's. I mean, it's on. it, but he's there. He's he's showing yes, he up, is, and we yeah. we're not missing a week. So um, yeah, Mark's been Mark's been an incredible part of the journey, and and also my kids as well, um, Juliet, Luke, and Sophia. They have taught me more than I could ever have imagined being a parent. And they continue to inspire me through how they deal with their journeys, you know, because I still can't imagine what it would be like to lose a parent at, at their age. Um, and and they still put up with me. And, um, you know, seeing them grow and flourish in this world is is just something which fills me with joy every day. Um, and so, you know, I think we don't thank our kids enough. Mm. But I really do think that they they choose us. We don't. We don't choose them, right? So there's a reason why. There's a reason why that. <laughs> before I go on to your fi- the final section, I've got to ask you this. Before we started recording, you said you were wearing your white shirt and there was a mm. reason. Now we haven't, for the lovely listeners listening, Mark is indeed wearing a very nice white shirt. But can, right, we mention, can I ask why you're wearing that white shirt? This shirt um, was actually a replica of a shirt that I bought in India. You never mentioned that I, my grandmother died and I, I headed off to India yeah. and I found myself in India learning about how different other people's lives were. And, and I, bought, I bought a white shirt and it had this really strong connection because it, it connected me back to some of the incredibly challenging things I saw and experienced, but also the gratitude it gave me for the life I'd had as a kid growing up in a very privileged, you know, upbringing and, you know, safe country and... And so one day I found that the shirt got trashed in India. The, the original one, it like didn't even last two weeks. It was <laughs> it, it was like ripped and and, and dirty. And there's no stories behind though. that. Anyway, <laughs> no, 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 none of that. Um, but what one day um, when uh, just after we discovered glass, we were, we'd been booked for Glastonbury. I thought I've got to find something to wear. I've got to like you know like back in the kind of got to look cool. Yeah. Um, and so I discovered this shirt, and it looked almost identical. Very good. And when, um, and so I wore it playing Glastonbury, this <gasps> this very shirt. Wow. And, right. And then, and then it sat in my cupboard for a number of years. And when Jen passed away, I had this really strong urge, literally like the week after she passed to put this shirt back on and just go out into the world and start telling people about like, live your life, guys. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> don't wait for life to happen like I've just been through this and and I've seen this and you've got to get on with it you've got to treasure every day you've got to you've got to love people you've got to hug people you've got to you know if you've got people you haven't spoken to for years call them now and tell them you love them and apologize and get you know just focus on the good things in life and I was going to do that but I also realized I wasn't ready for it um I realized that I needed to work through for a couple of years, actually, my grief and try and find out what life looked like. But when you asked me to come on this show, this is actually the first interview I've done since Jen passed wow. away. I mean, I know that I'm on the podcast every week, but we're interviewing other people and we're talking. 
Um, and I was so touched by how you reached out. And I and I looked in my wardrobe this morning. I thought, well, what 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 would be a symbolic thing for me to wear today that would recognise I'm stepping into this next journey of my life? And I saw that shirt, and I thought, oh, that's the shirt. So I showed up this morning wearing it. And what I'm going to do from now on is every time I coach or talk or create videos for the Life Library, I'm going to wear this shirt. Yeah. Because it kind of puts me in that space. And anyone listening to the bestseller experiments heard me for five years has probably never heard an interview like this one today. Yeah, well, I'm just so honored. I can't, I'm actually lost for words, which is not the right way for an author or a person who has a podcast to be. But that's well, especially it's not a good thing as an author. No, no, which I learn from your uh, podcast every week. But Oh my goodness, well, I'm so honoured and, and I know, and again, I will say, I know I've kept you for so long, but I think everyone would agree it'd be, it's been so worth it. But, you know, they will have learned so much from this conversation and it will stay with them as well. So I know it's not just me who's grateful. So thank you so, so much. Um, so on that note, on the final note, you know, you've given so much advice, you really have, but so someone's listening to this and if we start just first of all in terms of work but obviously you speak in a much bigger broader life sense really um mm. if someone's listening to this and they're like do you know what this is not right like what you say when people are are not being truthful this is they're not right um they're not really doing what they want to do they might be in their late 40s 50s are we getting a bit you know oh it's all very well everyone says that but you know I, I'm not going to mm. do it but actually they that feeling is getting worse and worse you know that sinking feeling and it's like actually if I don't do something now time is going to run out in terms of this time you know first of all what would you say to that person I would say, first of all, acknowledge where you are right now. Acknowledge that that's your struggle. And also recognize that for the rest of your life, you've got the opportunity to explore this and you've got the opportunity to, to see the potential of the life that you've not yet lived. And for me, what that is, is it's every day at least once a day, if not more times a day, but at least once a day, checking in with something which reconnects you to that knowing that there's something more important or bigger that you're meant to be doing. And for me, it's my marble jar. This is a small version of it. I, I love have a marble a mar jar. I have a marble jar in my, um, in my house, which is filled with a number of marbles left to my 4,000th Saturday. And every week I take one out and I hold it in my hand and I'm grateful for what that week represented but I recognize that that marble that unique marble has gone I've lost that I've lost that week not lost it but have I used it have I invested my time wisely have I chosen to do something because most people do this at New Year's Eve or you know once a year on the birthday for me it's about every single week checking in with it so I think it's it's really just a starting point of making a commitment to checking in with material reading audio podcast whatever it is that inspires you because that's the that's the fuel in our car that's the thing that keeps us going um and the more that we focus on those things the less time we have and the less we choose to focus on the things which pull us down mm. and really it's from this day onwards it's like saying it's it's never about crash dieting it's never about saying i'm going to change my life and you know i wouldn't recommend to most people like yeah just like leave your home and move to a different country i mean that's bonkers i recognize that fully um 
but it's about making commitment every single day to check in with something which lifts you up, which inspires you. Pick that person who, you know, most connects with your life or speaks in a way that resonates, helps you resonate. And make that commitment because I promise you, just like interest in a bank account, that will compound and compound. And in a very short period of time, you'll start to turn things around or you'll start to have a different perspective or maybe you'll start to gain some clarity in your life which maybe has been so cluttered before. I mean, a lot of my work is going to be around letting go. It's going to be around simplifying our lives. It's going to be about um, really standing back and looking at our life and working out how we can make space for this. Yeah. And then that compounds and, 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 and very, very quickly. I mean, I've always lived in this world myself and I want other people to be in that world too where they wake up each morning with this sense of you know wow i've got another day what what, how am i going to honor that how am i going to honor my life and how am i going to use this day and what's going to come out of my mouth and what thoughts am i going to allow myself to believe because we get to choose all those things i didn't get to choose you know what disease my wife got but i certainly got to choose how i reacted to it and that has made all the difference. Yeah. Yeah, it really has. And actually, even, like you say, our conversation now is kind of proof of this in the fe- in the terms that, you know, I listened, I discovered you, you and Mark Stay. I also, I recently interviewed Joanna Penn on um, my podcast and she's one of my, as she says, unofficial mentors, as you two are my unofficial mentors. And, and I can be your official mentor if you want. Oh, yes, please. Want, yes, please. I promise. I'll, uh, oh, I'll be, a, I'll, I'll listen to what you say. I will. I will. Um, but they, um, but it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Because, you know, like, again, I go back to that conversation I heard with you and Angela Marsons and that, that voice comes in my head when I have my days of like, oh my goodness, this is so hard. Instead of that 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 voice that can come in of really, do you really want you really think you're going to write books? Do you really think your books are going to break through? You know, it, and I don't know, but Angela did it and she stuck with it. And Mark Stay said just uh, on your five year anniversary, he said himself he's been decades. He's been writing books since his his daughter was born. Um, I think it was his daughter, but you know. So it and it's like, actually, you're not alone. You're not stupid. This is very natural. You're learning a craft. And that voice cheers me up when I'm running around rather than thinking, so, you know, this is this is proof. This is proof. And I'm just going to ask you this. I really do know you have to go. because You've got lots, lots on. But one of my friends, she was asking me this the other day. And she said, you know, when I have these conversations and she listens in. And she's a mum, she's a great mum, but she and she works four days a week. And it's and and it's how um how you can do it when you've got all that responsibility and be thinking and start making a because you've got so much going on anyway. Now, obviously you're not a woman, but you are, have been a single parent for a while now. Yeah. With your hands full. I have a lot of respects for mums, I can tell you. I, yeah, I, we love you, the fact that you do. And um but the also, you know, you had that huge, you know, you're dealing with grief as well, which as you said was a perfect excuse for so many other choices. But you know, your four thousand Saturdays the best seller can you know the experiment it's absolutely thriving so what would you say say to her to my friend mel what would you say to her you know if she if she's really thinking about it but feels a bit bogged down what would your advice to her be so 
the, yeah, it's a brilliant question. And actually the, the most important, I'm going to go into my coaching mode <laughs> now, but the most important thing that you have to do is you have to start by looking at your life and simplifying. I literally did a complete like uh, service or MOT or like a, you know, I looked at my life and I just looked at the, what was pretty chaotic or obviously around the times where things, all the stability in my life had disappeared and it was, we were just hanging on by our fingernails. But I actually took the time out. I know it sounds silly, but I got on, I got on top of my email. I structured, I learned, I decided to structure my day. One thing that I'm going to do in my life library is share with people the life manual that I created for myself. I won't probably share the entire manual, but I created a manual for my life so that I could refer to it and go, this is how I need to do these things to make sure I get them done and they don't clutter my life. And so a lot of the times when we don't we don't have the ability to do the things we want to do, it's because our lives have been created. They're so complicated, not necessarily by our own doing, just by the nature of having kids or, you know, things like parents to look after or whatever things are taking up incredible amounts of your time. But we can always find the time by simplifying. But we have to stand back big picture and look at what's going on in our life and say, right, how where do I start? It's a bit like kind of looking at your, your attic or your basement, or in my case, the garage. And you're like, oh, my gosh, where do I start? But when you start somewhere and you have a process and, and a system to actually making it better, and then once more importantly, once you've done it, you have a system to stop it getting back to where it was, suddenly life opens up. So it's about, it's about self-reflection, even though it feels like you don't have the time to even self-reflect. And that is the paradox but you have to make that time. And again, it's about little and often. It's the 200 word challenge we talk about on the podcast, right? 200 words a day. It's like do one thing that simplifies your finances. Do one thing that simplifies your email inbox. Do one thing that simplifies um, how you've laid out your kitchen. If it can save you like, you know, you know, 10 minutes over the week, it might, it will add up over your life. And so I teach a lot around that practicalities of it as well, because I, I'm doing it. I've done it. I've had to do it. Um, and you know, I can sit here and chat because my life is, this is my growth day. I have a growth day in my, in my week. It's like a day I've worked out how to take a day where I, I spend, you know, an entire day in my working week. And I say working week because I, I get so much value from that every other day once I've done it. But to have the luxury to now be able to do that is, is something I want to show others how to do. Well, Mark DeVoe, thank you. Thank you for spending your growth day with me. Thank you for wearing <laughs> that lovely shirt. Thank you for just being amazing, for talking and just being such a fabulous guest on the next chapter. Thank you so, so much. I truly am speechless, which is definitely not good for an author. Oh, well, thank you so much, Ellie. And I really appreciate the, the work you're doing on this podcast. And uh, yeah, I look forward to chatting again soon. Okay, so there you are what a conversation and thank you so much mark for being so generous with your time and telling us your story i have learned so much from that it really made me think and i hope it has you too the marble jar just that i mean every week another one goes such a simple trick but what a way to focus and make us all think and he's so right we do get caught up in the trivial and life is waiting for us we just have to find it now to find out more about Mark and his work, the links will be in the show notes. The Life Library, I mean, what an idea. I can't wait to see more. 
You can learn all about me at elliebarkerwrites.com. If you enjoyed this episode, and I really hope you did, it would be marvellous if you could rate and review it, and it just might help other people with their next chapters. Right, if you've listened all the way to here, well, thank you so much for giving your time. I really hope it helps. Go on, you can do it. I believe you can, and Mark definitely does. Speak soon. <laughs>